0: Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Gregor Robertson is with me as usual and I'm pleased to say that Alison Rudd is also with us today. Gregor and Alison, lovely to have you both on today's pod. Alison, how are you doing? I'm really well, thank you, Natalie. How are you? Yes, I'm very well as well, thank you. Uh, Been back on the court since we last had you on the pod?
1: Yeah, won a tournament. Just thought I'd throw that in. Oh,
0: so casual. You were hoping I'd ask you this question, I bet. (laughs) In terms of tournament, how many people are in this tournament? Uh, four. (laughs) That's all right, Alison. I like it. Best of what? Best of three sets? How many sets do you play?
1: We played seven games each singles.
0: So so
1: I like to think it's a true representation (laughs) of genius. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, Alison, I, I mean, I've been terribly lazy, as I tell everybody. Uh, what about you, Gregor? How's this uh, sub-21? We did do sub-21, didn't we? I say we. Yes. Yeah. I feel like
2: it's... <laughs> you taking some credit, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, no, I've not at not that yet. I've actually no. had a bit of a, a lazy week. Um, and I was also panicking earlier. I, I broke my laptop so i've i 've dug out this ancient artifact that feels like an Amstrad or something, and uh, i 'm hoping it 's going to function okay today, so fingers oh, crossed
0: okay. <laughs> How did you break your laptop
2: Brother? uh just a little fall on the sofa, and it kind of um the screen cracked and it just went completely oh. black, so oh, got it. No. I only bought it like three months ago as well. Devastating.
0: Oh. That's not good. But hopefully the the laptop you're with now will just be as reliable and we'll have you for the rest of the pod. (laughs) Um, Coming up, we're getting a player's perspective on Project Restart and discussing the future of penalty kicks. All that to come after this. Now, on Thursday, we had the news that Premier League football will be back on our screens on the 17th of June, and now the Championship will return just three days later on the 20th. The announcement has come in for criticism, with Championship clubs not yet back in full contact training, as well as concerns over the spread of coronavirus at clubs. While the Premier League announced no players or club staff had COVID-19 from 1,130 tests, the latest results from the Championship showed 10 positive cases from eight different clubs after 1,058 tests. There is a view that the infection is being acquired within the community given the measures that are in place at training grounds and is, as a result, of relaxed attitudes to the pandemic. Earlier in the week, three individuals from two championship clubs had tested positive from 1,030 tests. As it is then... It is the 20th of June that has been pencilled in for the restart from the EFL to mirror the Premier League schedule. Gregor, are we surprised it is back so soon?
2: Uh, yes and no. I think it's really, you know, we discussed this last week in regards to the Premier League. And there's so many uh, so many factors at play. But if you look at it in the kind of cold light of day, three weeks Less than three weeks of full contact training. I'm not even sure the Championship players have had the same kind of you know, three-week build-up or whatever it, was, whatever it was beforehand, kind of training in on, on their own at training grounds or in very small groups. Uh, so it's a short window, very short mm. window. And as we're going to come on to discuss, there's also far more players out of contract and their fears are a lot greater about uh, injury. Yeah, if you're if you're about to fall out a contract, so yeah, I, I think there's going to be some conversations about this uh, still to come.
0: Well, some of the conversations I've had, Alison, with um, EFL Championship chairman, uh, is that they one think it is quite hasty to be returning to competitive action on the twentieth of June when contact training hasn't properly begun, and also the fact that they they don't even know the guidelines on how how they can go about making sure that their stadiums are safe, or how they go about even doing their travelling to to away games. Do you feel that it might be a bit hasty for the Championship to be returning as soon as it is? It could be,
1: and and there is an irony in this, in that there is a a move amongst a a high proportion of Championship clubs to be seen as part of the Premier League party, if you like, that if you're going to bracket divisions uh, within professional football, then you should treat the Premier League and the Championship as being part of the same family and uh, League 1 and League 2 are separate to that. And that is, I I mean, you know, they're, they're all individual clubs with different incomes and policies and philosophies, but there is this idea that they would like to be seen as part of the Premier League club I mean, you know, the, the 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 home of them, and then you've got, and in a in a sense, the fact they're being bracketed now with the Premier League, and that we want this sort of parallel start, and the reason for that is because it kind of spoils the narrative slightly if you say football is back, and that means relegation and promotion are back, and you don't have them running along the same tram lines. So you can see how, in some respects, the Championship should be absolutely delighted. They're sort of being treated as if they are the Premier League. Well, they're quite clearly not. They haven't been party to any of the uh, debriefings by scientists and doctors and so on. It's been a completely different set of circumstances for them. They're hanging on by their coattails to what they know from what the Premier League clubs have discussed. They are behind... There are managers coming out now saying they just don't believe their players will be ready to tackle in time. You know, you've got to learn how to contact train again. And so it, there is a danger this, uh, you know, feel good factor, let's make the country's mental health better by bringing them football back, could be ruined if, if you do rush it. So it, it does, it does seem very counterintuitive and counterproductive. To tell um, a whole division, yes, you're coming back, whether you're ready or not. I can see the need for them to start at the same time, but th- there should also be an awful lot more advice given to them as to why this is possible. Because if they start and they don't believe it's safe, then it, it it will be it will be it could potentially be awful. You can't play competitive sport unless you play it full-bloodedly, with all your heart, all your soul and commitment. You can't go into it thinking, I'm not sure we're ready for this.
0: Well, Gregor, you touched on the subject of... Out of contract players, the Charlton manager, Lee Bowyer, has highlighted a problem facing several EFL clubs this morning. He's revealed that three of his players, including star striker Lyle Taylor, are refusing to play the final games of the season. This is what Bowyer said. He wants to play, but he's so worried about getting injured that he says he wouldn't be the same player for us. It's difficult because he's so big for us, he's going to get a life-changing move. Well, Taylor has added 11 goals to the 25 that he scored last season to help Charlton out of League One, but is now refusing to play with his contract up at the end of the campaign. The same goes for Academy graduate and fan favourite Chris Solly, who's also out of contract this summer, and also midfielder David Davis, who is on loan from Birmingham City and is apparently refusing to even report for duty back in London. So Gregor, when you take into account the situation involving those three players that I've mentioned, should a player actually have the right to refuse to play?
2: In ordinary circumstances, I would say no, because, I mean, it always leaves a bad taste in the mouth of teammates and club and supporters and and calls into question the fact whether you know you're paid to play football and you're contracted to do so but at this point they will not be contracted to do so so this is a unique circumstance the contract's run out on June 30th and the season is going to continue into July and you know there's 376 players out of contract on June 30th in the championship uh and after that, they're free to sign for another club. So, Lyle Taylor is one player who will have, as Lee Boyer says, a life-changing move, probably agreed, or he'll have a couple of options, and he's just got to decide which one. Um, the vast majority of players won't have that. They will be players who, because of the financial climate now in the Championship, will be offered vastly reduced terms. I've heard, you know, I've heard several uh, examples of this, be offered much reduced contracts for next season, possibly shorter deals as well, maybe a year rather than two or three. Um, and at this moment in time, security is, is what everyone is looking for. Uh, it's the kind of, That's the current climate. So if they were offered a two-year deal by another club, um, the prospect of them playing throughout July and playing, as we've already discussed, uh, with three weeks training in the bank, playing nine games in the space of six weeks and some experts have said and risk of injuries will increase by about 20 up to 25 percent. then they have you know it's a it's a conundrum and i can understand it i as i say I've mo- this kind of goes against what i would ordin- ordinarily feel i think that really it takes a heck of a lot for a player to refuse to play for their club mm. um but this is you know this is a pretty unprecedented time and and, and and they are at a contract. It's their it's their decision. And you have to remember too that the vast majority of these 376 players in the championship, and 1,019 in the EFL overall, will not be being offered anything. So they are out in the cold. So you know this is a time where everyone is is looking out for themselves. And I I, I actually can't blame them.
0: But of course, Charlton fans right now will be in despair, Gregor. They'll be thinking. But we need you. We need you to help us get out of the relegation zone that we find ourselves in currently.
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I won't blame them for feeling that way either. Um, But I I think that... I think a lot of clubs, actually... Lyle Taylor will probably be quite an extreme example because he's had a phenomenal season. Charlton won't won't be able to pay him anything like the kind of money he's going to earn somewhere else. But I think actually, what you will see is this will be a bargaining tool now for a lot of players. I think you know, as I say, if someone's been offered reduced terms, shorter term of a contract they've they've got between now and June the twentieth, say their clubs facing relegation like Charlton are to say, look if you you know you need me to play to try and keep us up for the rest of the season, I need a little bit more security and you know i think I think that's fair enough. I think that's fair enough. And uh, there will be extreme examples like this. And he's a talisman for Charlton. I will not blame them for feeling feeling kind of very hard done by by this. Um, But, you know, he fired them into the championship in the first place. And if he was to be injured, uh, his move, his kind of dream move at the age of 30 would be dust. Mm.
0: Alison, I'd assume that Charlton, uh, as... Gregor has just pointed out will not be the only club in this situation finding that their players will be out of contract soon how will we stop this problem occurring across the championship where we may find ourselves with lots of clubs if probably not probably all clubs in a situation where they may have one two three four players saying I I don't want to play
1: Uh, dialogue you have to sit down with each player and work out what they owe you as the club I, I mean Every player will have had different income during the uh, lockdown. If they've been earning money and not playing football, they they owe their clubs some football. Also, you might like to point out to them that who's going to want to sign a player who is so clearly mercenary and self-interested and worried about injury it might alert clubs who want to buy you to the injuries they didn't know you had that you you know things you're protecting yourself from rupturing and so on I think the only way around this is to is to in the nicest possible way make sure that the players are reminded of the family they're in now and the fans that depend on them now and that every time you play football you are in the shop window and that doesn't mean always, oh you score you know a beautiful goal and put in a manner the match performance, therefore someone might want to buy you. People look at attitude and uh, hints of possible injury problems and so on you you really don't want to be putting yourself out there as somebody who who you know you're alerting people to issues you have don't do that make it about your football and your positive attitude i'm not saying any of these when i say dialogue i mean that i'm not saying you sort of throw you know fist down on the table and say you have to play but i'm sure i'm sure if you talk to players who have these concerns and talk talk it through and make them see that it could actually be counterproductive to what they're trying to do in the end which is get another job somewhere that that they will they will do what you know as i think all of us probably feel is the right thing to do you just be it's a terrible thing what's happened it's made everyone's lives different and difficult in different ways um if you have to alter your plans slightly or th- things have gone differently to how you hoped well you know a lot of people are in the same boat mate so get on with it
0: <laughs> do you think alison just to pick up on something you mentioned about the dialogue and and not necessarily alerting people to to uh to yourself being a mercenary let's say if you were a footballer do you think other clubs really do pay attention to that because at the end of the day, someone like Lyle Taylor, who has been courted now by a number of clubs for, for his strengths on the pitch, will they really care about what, no. how his attitude towards Charlton right now if they know that they're going to get a goal scorer?
1: That, well, it might... That depends on the dressing room, doesn't it? It might alert you to the fact he might just not fit into your current dressing room. Or it might not fit into the way the owner likes to chat to the team or the way the manager does his team talks. I think probably more, less important than that is the fact that if you start talking about injuries, people will think about injuries, whether you've got one or not. You're suddenly making yourself into a problem purchase instead of an amazing purchase. You've just got to be careful how you frame yourself, I think.
2: Mm.
0: Gregor, I think I heard but, you go, no.
2: No. I mean, let's be honest. If you, How often do we hear of players in a transfer window refusing to train? Or you know, I, someone like Harry Maguire, who's a, held up as a consummate professional, suddenly came down with a sickness bug just at the time where he was, where Manchester United were sort of put, applying the pressure to to seal the move from from Leicester City. You know, th- this is a kind of tactic that that is used, and I know it's a bit unpalatable, but um, I, this is more extreme than even that because th- those players are contracted for usually for two, three, four years in the Premier League. Um, if they were injured in trading or whatever, that's, you know, they're still going to earn, earn a living. Lyle Taylor's 30. He's played for teams like Falkirk, uh, Sheffield United in League One, Chartland in League One, Wimbledon in League One, uh, and he's got the chance, maybe even, of a Premier League move. And if you've got, and someone's saying, you know, your contract's expired. We've had very, very poor preparation for nine games. He's had a, he's had a few injuries... Uh, over the course of the season. Um, You come back now, play nine games in a short space of time, try and help us stay up. Um, I'm sure he wants to, in an ideal world, he'd want to do that. He's he's got a big affinity with Charlton and the fans, but when you're weighing that up and this is his one last opportunity to get this this big move, then I I don't blame him.
1: Isn't it more nuanced, Gregor, if you're not in the Premier League, as you move down the divisions, that... If you sometimes you just need a squad to just put in that extra mile when they're knackered and you know they haven't got any bonuses to offer you, but they just want to know that you know if, if things get tough, they can rely on you. For example, I don't, I, I just, I just think if I was weighing up two players and one player was one who'd mentioned worries about getting injured and his contract, I'd probably go for the one who who just decided. To, you know, he wanted to repay the club that he had some affinity for. I think I what think you're
2: probably I think you're probably right. Yeah, but that there's not many Lyle Taylors on a free transfer from Charlton Athletic uh, available at any one time, any one summer. So, you know, if you if you want to point out another Lyle Taylor available for free, who is willing to play through the uh, through risk of injury and and sort of help his club up, and they were the same player, of course you would go for him. But there aren't many Lyle Taylors available for free this summer.
0: And how do you think footballers feel, if they care at all, about being referred to as mercenaries, Gregor?
2: Uh, They would rather not be, but it's easily forgotten. And if you start scoring goals for his new club, those fans will love him.
0: Well, we mentioned that championship clubs aren't happy then with this statement that was put out last night from the EFL with regards to the championship restart date. QPR released a statement this morning in which they lambasted the EFL on that championship return, citing a lack of consultation with individual clubs and the proposed restart date as well. Uh, As I mentioned, having spoken to, to a couple of chairmen within the championship, it does seem as though the lack of consultation, Gregor, is a big issue for them. Do you think Pride is at stake for a lot of these clubs because June the 8th was pencilled in as when they were going to meet up championship clubs or have their virtual meeting as they've been doing um, and have a vote on when the championship should restart. But it seems that the EFL have jumped the gun a little bit. They've already come out with their date. So do you feel maybe this is pride that's been dented by some of these championship clubs that haven't had a proper conversation with those at the EFL?
2: A little bit. I mean, I think we're kind of looking at the food chain in, in action here. It's the same with players a few weeks ago in terms of the, the date for a restart in the Premier League being being banded around and, and the footballers themselves, the ones who were playing, hadn't been consulted. So I'm sure there is an element of that, you know, when you thought you were going to have some voice in the planning for how the football returns. But really, I think that it ultimately comes down to the the fact that they haven't even started full contact training. And they're talking about three weeks away, and that's that's perfectly valid. That is really a, that is asking a lot, uh, and there's a lot riding on this for for some clubs. Um, for most clubs, I mean, if you look at the championship table, QPR are thirteenth and they're six points six points away from the playoffs. They've got a chance at the playoffs. It's very slim, but they have a chance. Uh, and there's you know a handful of teams involved in the in the relegation battle. So there's probably only a handful of teams who have nothing to play for. It's extraordinary. I think you know when all this is over with, the championship is actually going to be the league to watch for some for some uh, jeopardy in a real title race. Um, but I, I think really, ultimately, it will. It, it comes down to that. Three weeks is not enough, and and despite all the all the kind of factors at play, and the, you know, the Premier League needed to start at a certain date because it, need, it needed to please broadcasters or it would have a rebate. Uh, players. You know the, play, the players had to be convinced. The championship is trying to keep on the coattails, as Alison said, of the Premier League because they don't—they're terrified of falling out of sync and um, what that would mean for for promotion uh, and the kind of link. And as Alison says, they have some aspirations. Some of these chairmen have becoming a Premier League too. Um, so everyone is kind of—I don't know—playing catch up or, or just trying to react to to, to the the body or. Or group above them, uh, and this is the latest latest example of that.
0: You say, Gregor, that three weeks perhaps isn't enough. What would be
2: enough? What would be enough? Well, I th- when players were when the Premier League players were consulted about this, they wanted they wanted f- at least four, uh, and they've not got it. I know they understand that, but I think, as I said earlier, I think that they have had slightly better. Kind of preparation over the weeks beforehand, you know the weeks leading up to this uh, in terms of being able to go to the training ground safely and be you know be have training sessions put on by coaches staff or or fitness coaches on their own often uh, then in the small groups, so they've had a kind of run up to this. I don't know if every championship club has had that some of the bigger ones might have, but you know i don't I don't believe that there'll have been the same sort of preparation players have been having heart rate monitors and running on the streets or finding a park and now they're going straight back into full contact training. It's, it's asking for injuries. Mm.
0: Uh, many clubs are unhappy then as we've been saying, Alison. Do they? Do you feel like they're just going to have to accept that we have to restart as soon as possible or will the Championship be able to extend that by, by a week or so? Do you think they have the strength to be able to do that? Um, not if they're all Coming at it from a different direction, I mean
1: they're, they're, some some clubs are saying this is fantastic news, some clubs are saying this is terrible we haven't been consulted properly unless they can all speak with if they could all speak with one voice and sound reasonable, unless they could, they could negotiate a delay but if you've got if you've got some clubs saying yes, they can do it, and some clubs saying they can't it's not going to work is it <laughs> um and I think really if you look at um the results from the Bundesliga—it's quite clear even within one division that some, you know, some teams are, are, have been far better prepared than others. You can tell from a watching the way they play and b the results that are coming out that some are just at it and some haven't been. So, I I suspect we will see something like that happening in the championship. We'll see some matches which were very surprised by the performances and the score lines because. Clubs will be at a different level. Most important of all, though, is that I think they have to assume whether they get a delay of a week or not, they have to go at it now and be, um, you know, being really positive to everybody within the, within their walls and out on the training pitches about doing the best they can to get ready. it's it's, it's like if you go in, it's the same as going in for a tackle half heartedly. You're more likely to get injured. I think just starting a season, restarting a season. With doubts and worrying about where you're at, you're more likely to have um, problems, I think. I think accept it's difficult and find ways through it. And if, if some serious doubts arise, you've got to get everybody on board and speak with one voice and say we need longer because of this and say what this is. It's not a feeling, it's not a doubt, you know, it's it's what the doctors and physios are telling you.
0: Well, Alison, you've been chatting to the Crystal Palace skipper Luka Milivojevic for the Times about his role in the negotiations that brought back Premier League football. For the first time, captains have been asked to be involved in meetings with scientists, administrators, doctors and their peers before feeding back information to their teammates. Players have spoken about their mixed emotions of happiness and frustration of Phase 2 training that has physical contact but looks to minimise its risks. Alison, did uh, Milivojevic seemed like a player that's happy about the return of football.
1: Oh yeah, overall, yes, definitely. Um, I would say we did it via Zoom, and he was sort of jigging around when he was talking <laughs> about it. <laughs> definitely keen to get going. Uh-huh. Um, but he was—he was. I found him really open about how it's been uh, different for him. I mean, he's the captain. English is not his first language, and I get the impression he's been. You know he's been sat there listening to all these meetings the managers have had, taking copious notes, thinking about what they've said, planning his questions, making sure he relates the answers back to his teammates. If you think about it, this is not something football captains are supposed to do. I mean, captaincy really doesn't mean that much in the foot- terms of football at all, and most managers will tell you they've got three or four captains on the pitch anyway. So he's he's taken it really seriously, and I suspect most, if not all, the Premier League captains, whilst not used to having this role, um, like being at a summit meeting, they've um, they've taken it really seriously. And uh, he was very Luca was very earnest about that, and you really get the sense that he has this sense of responsibility that they're his family, and he wants to make sure that they know everything he's heard. He's made sure they understand it too.
0: Gregor, when you think back to some of your previous captains, any stand out as the right choice to deal with scientists or administrators, or, or perhaps even that stand out that wouldn't have been the right choice but maybe <laughs> the other skipper?
2: Uh, I'm not sure who, then football is right to deal with scientists, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> administrators maybe. I mean, the, most captains in my experience are are fairly kind of strong-willed characters, and uh, and they would stand up for the kind of interests of of your, of the teammates in in a room like that um I would we, a captain was, Gregor only like as a stand-in I was never a kind of uh like a cap- named captain at the start of the season knew
0: you no. couldn't deal with scientists <laughs> That was
2: it yeah Probably. I'll I'll say that anyway um, <laughs> Go on you were going to tell us something Well there, there's there's some you know where's Morgan just now I, I interviewed a few weeks back he he's undertaken courses in, in becoming a director of football so you know, he could be in in the shoes of the administrators one day, so he's definitely someone who's very well suited for this. And he's a PFA rep, and um, someone else like Michael Dawson as well stands out to me as someone who I, I played with as a captain, and he undoubtedly would kind of ask difficult questions. And and, and from what I've heard, anyway, the, you know the players have been in constant contact in WhatsApp groups and stuff over the over the last couple of months or whatever. Um, and they, you know, everyone's firing, firing in the questions they have, and the players have kind of taken that forward and, and and asked them to the people who they hope have answers. They've not always had the answers, but I um, know I think I think actually the captains of, of of Premier League clubs have have dealt very well with us in the last couple of months in the way that they've kind of presented a fairly united front as well. Um, so no, I think I think probably they've all stood up for their for their teammates.
0: Mm. Well, Milivojevic explained how some of the problems to come out of phase two training have been the following: the advice to minimise unnecessary close contact could cause injury, as he explains, you either play properly or not at all, as Alison alluded to earlier on as well. Not being able to hug and kiss his teammates after not seeing them for eight weeks. There's complaints of stiffness in calves, groin and hamstrings that you need someone to help you with. Now, in phase two, there will be help, but for no longer than 15 minutes. And also he worries that he won't be able to restrain himself to not hug a teammate if they've just scored a 90th-minute winner. He sounds like he's a very touchy-feely, emotional <laughs> kind of guy that just loves a hug. But when you think about players playing, should they be punished for unnes- unnecessary contact,
1: Alison? Well, uh, this is the um, uh, part of the problem, I think, is that the, uh, and, uh, Luca... Ref- alluded to this in the interview, because he's, he's one of his best mates is Philip Kostic, who um, plays at Eintracht. And so he's been talking to him about how it's gone in the Bundesliga. And Kostic was saying, it's a bit weird that you you have to wear a mask on the sub bench and then suddenly you're next to somebody in the warm-up or on the pitch. It's as though there's a feeling that they're doing these things to prove that they're sensitive to distancing whereas in fact they if you think about them they make no logical sense at all and so to punish someone for getting close to someone else when you score when you've got really close to them when you were tackling them that that is nonsensical all you can do is, is ask the players to be aware that they're doing this whole role model thing again people are watching and if they do things slightly differently it's reminding the world at large that we're still trying to distance but you do not punish someone if one minute they have to touch them for a tackle and in the next minute they have to touch them for an emotional release that would be utterly ludicrous hmm.
0: Greg I mean how hard do you think it will be for players to not have that instinct not hug. To... <laughs> so, yeah, but, you know, to celebrate a goal and to kind of go for the chest pumps or whatever it is that players do for their (laughs) celebrations how hard is it to to not do that do you think
2: I think we've seen it in the Bundesliga I think there's been some you know we saw uh uh, Haaland when he scored the first goal and the kind of that was an iconic picture of the sort of socially distant celebration and then we've seen other games where it's just completely forgotten about yeah Uh, I think think it probably matters about the context of the goal in the game you know if if it's a last minute winner obviously it's hard to to sort of restrain yourself uh, whereas I saw Kai Havert scoring goals and he kind of runs away nonchalantly with his fist out sort of urging a little fist bump um, so I think it matters the context but no the players shouldn't be punished it's, it's ludicrous and you know the games have already been sanitized enough I think if you, if you start punishing players for that we're 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 going down a <laughs> we're going down a bit of a hole.
0: Well, Milivojevic is the Premier League's new penalty king, scoring 21 spot kicks for Palace. That's more than any other Premier League player since his debut. He has been speaking to Alisson about his concerns, though, over taking one in an empty stadium. He said this, I haven't taken a penalty in an empty stadium, but I believe it's much harder to shoot without people because when you have people in the stadium, there is a lot of pressure. But that gives you focus. If you don't have that pressure, Maybe you lose your focus. You relax a little bit. And then in the end, if you miss, nobody will go, ah. There'll be no reaction from the crowd. It'll be very hard to keep the same quality. People in the stadium, they push you. When you go for a counterattack, they are screaming. They are loud. They push you to go forward. So it sounds so he has quite big reservations and concerns, Alison, about the possibility of having to take penalties in an empty stadium.
1: No, he, d- he didn't have concerns. I asked him whether he thought... It would be different, and he said, "Oh, I hadn't thought about it, but maybe it would be because, um, obviously, what he's let slip there is that he he gets he gets his focus from knowing that it matters a lot. Yeah. So he feeds off the atmosphere, that sort of intake of breath, knowing that there's going to be a lot of." disgruntlement and loud noise if he misses and huge cheer if he scores and he he's let me know there that he feeds off that and i think that's particularly interesting because i've spoken to other penalty takers who will say the key is to pretend there is nobody there at all Mm -hmm. and that if you acknowledge how important the kick is and that you might hear arg uh, if you miss then you're not going to be able to take the penalty kick so um it just it all it's done really there is he's underlined that the the parameters will be different and he has to work out a way to make sure he's focused. And that's that is at the ultimate root of all good penalty takers, knowing what makes you focused and then being able to execute it.
0: Gregor, were you a penalty taker? Or did you have to in, in penalty shootouts and I did, did in I
2: penal- did in penalty shootouts, yes.
0: So what would you how would you focus on the penalty?
2: Um you know, I, I was interested reading this. I would, I would have thought actually that no crowd would kind of relax you a bit, and also I suppose it depends whether you're home or away. Um, so how did I focus? I just focused on knowing exactly where I was going to strike the ball, and you know, I always knew that because I didn't take them so regularly. You know, there was I would very much doubt a goalkeeper had done his homework on me, so I knew exactly where I was going to strike it and out it there as hard as I could, and I, I didn't miss. <laughs> but um, you know there are there, there's so many factors nowadays with penalties and and one of them is the homework that goalkeepers do so he's got to be able to kind of mix mix them up and I was very interested to hear that I thought it would be the the other way around I thought there'd be he'd be more relaxed without any any fans kind of whistling or booing
0: I mean it'll all come down to the individual won't it and maybe some keepers might enjoy an empty stadium as well with not having the opposition fans behind them jeering them on. Um, Milivojevic's 21 from 23 penalty record puts him third on the all-time Premier League list with an impressive 91.3% conversion rate. Only Thierry Henry, 23 out of 25, and Matt Letitier, 25 out of 26, have a better record for players who have taken 20 penalties or more. So, Alison, what, what makes him such a good penalty taker, do you think? Well, one we've answered it. He actually enjoys
1: the pressure, and that's um, <laughs> if, and there are no penalties anymore that aren't under pressure. So if, if he's getting if he gets a kick out of knowing it really matters and he likes doing that, then that makes him a really good penalty taker. Also, if you watch the way he takes penalties, he he does treat it like an art form. It's more like um, a golf swing with him. Even when he scores goals um, outside the box, it's the same um, sort of pattern of, of of, of fluid motion that he has when he takes a penalty he gets a lot of power into a very relaxed stance it's it is an art form and he's very good at mixing up whether he goes central left or right of the keeper so the keeper doesn't know what he's going to do uh, there's an elegance to it he, he's just very good at the point of contact knowing that he's got that point of contact sorted and just making it very fluid very powerful and accurate
0: Alison talking there about it being an art form, Gregor, do you see that the penalty and the way that people take penalties has changed as an art, let's say, in recent years?
2: I think it has, yeah. I think probably more like in the last 10 years, but it's becoming more and more commonplace that players now run up and take a cue from the goalkeeper, which takes obviously immense confidence uh, and kind of awareness of where the ball is often if you're not really looking at it until until your, the very last moment when you strike it. You think about, you know, I, think about it, not very many players did that more than 10. Someone like, I remember someone like Men, uh, Mendieta, someone who did that for Spain. He's some of the first players I, I saw do that. Um, but nowadays you've got someone like Jorginho or or Fernandez, who who they also have a kind of little leap It's quite this little leap of the final step and it's almost any way that you can pause your run-up in order to let the goalkeeper make the first kind of move uh, they deem as an advantage. But as I say, that takes enormous confidence and uh, I certainly know I wouldn't be able to do that.
0: Well, so many rules and regulations have been altered in football but the penalty kick has remained largely unchanged. But do we still like the old-fashioned punt from 12 yards? Now, if you scour the internet... Criticisms include 12 yards is too close. It should be 15 or 20 yards. It encourages diving in the box because the reward is so great. Some fouls in the box should actually be indirect free kicks. In basketball, the fouled player has to take the free throw, which makes fouling more tactical. Penalty shootouts aren't a fair way to decide major tournament knockout games. So when you hear those criticisms, Alison, do you agree with any of them?
1: The only no. The only thing I've found uh, that I have really have not liked at all has been the way um, that VAR has you know made a, a, a save invalid because there's been this minuscule movement from the the goalkeeper. I think everyone wants to make it. it, it it's it's you know it's the matador and the bull. You want it to be a fair contest. You want to feel that either ta- either of those protagonists could come out victorious. So I want. I, when I watch a penalty kick, I don't like it if I feel that the, the goalkeeper is at a disadvantage and it's only all about the yeah. striker of the ball hitting the target. And if he does well, or she does, then that's fine. It's, it's going to happen because there's not a lot. And there was this period after um, a review of what the goalkeeper did where you know, you just felt, how's that working in the goalkeeper's heads? How on earth can you handle that? You've got to be able to jiggle and move around and so on. Fortunately... Uh, the Premier League, at least, decided it was it had gone too far, and I would hate I would hate for that to be reintroduced. For this this sense for the, that you can't have the the goalkeeper being allowed to to jiggle about and play mind games with the attacker. I love penalties. I love the way you can spot different styles. I like Xizinho for Chelsea. His little sort of stop star skippity dip. They've all got something, they've all got something, and the tension that you get, it's sort of like penalties awarded, and suddenly you get a, a different sort of fluttering in your chest, and the whole the whole match goes into a different phase for about four minutes. I think that's one of the great things about football, and so you could be watching the most beautiful sort of total football type of match, and then... It would change completely if you had a penalty awarded. That the, the the sense of urgency and so on. It can really, it can really alter the mood in in a good way. Uh, so, and I think that's the reason, Natalie, that very little has changed is because mm. they provide instantaneous, amazing drama. And if you think about it, it's pointless saying oh, it's not fair. It's entirely fair. If you if you're paid to play, if you're paid to play football, you should be able to strike a ball cleanly enough to beat a bloke stood in front of you.
0: <laughs> I think we'd gone a few weeks in fact probably the whole of lockdown without VAR being mentioned
2: but Alison <laughs> you brought it up <laughs> so
0: Alison I think obviously by the sound of it you're quite happy with how the, the penalty kick and everything it, it works out in football right now how about you Gregor do you think it needs any tweaks do you agree with any of those criticisms that I mentioned
2: no I, I, I think look it should be a deterrent it should be a deterrent for fouling in the box around the you know when someone's close to scoring. So I think if you were to move the ball back further than 12 yards, that would sort of lessen the deterrent. Uh, I think if you were to turn someone into indirect free kicks, it would do the same. I think encouraging diving in the box is true, but I think that that's, we need to clamp down on, on diving rather than changing penalty kicks. I have to say the thing about the, the free throw was quite intriguing. Uh but no, look, I'm a, I'm a traditionalist on the whole, I think. I think penalties work pretty well the way they are. And there's been so many ways that people have, you know, thought about trying to decide a game in another way. Or, um, But it's, none of them are the same as penalties.
0: OK, then. I'm going to ask you both to nominate one player from past or present to take a penalty kick that your life depends on. Or, shall we say, let's say for you, Alison, it seals the title for Liverpool... Who do you choose and why? Alison. There's only one man for the
1: job. <laughs> Mille, Mille Jedinak. He has taken 17 penalties in his career and he has scored 17 penalties no in way. his career. Mm-hmm. And I watched... I was in I was in Russia. I was watching Australia v France and um, Australia were awarded the penalty and I turned to everybody in the box. I said, he'll score this, he'll score this. You know, I know he's going to score this. <laughs> And there was no, there was just to have absolutely no doubt. Now, um, Matt Letitia is one of my favourite players of all times, but even my confidence in Jedinak for the penalty take was higher than it was for whenever I watched Matt Letizia. It There's something about him that is so completely focused. And he's the opposite of um, Luca in that he he told me the key for him is to pretend he's on his own. And there's absolutely nobody there at all. It's just him making sure he makes good contact. But he's he's a monster when he takes um, a penalty. And of course, you know he was he was brought on just to take a penalty for um, Aston Villa to to get to the playoff final. And that's pressure enough. I mean, there can't be any more pressure than that. You know, you're going to have to take a penalty. He's been on the bench for god knows how long, and he knew. And he said that's the only time he wobbled slightly was. Because he knew that <laughs> he had one job, um, but he did it. And, um, yeah, he's he's um, an impressive bloke generally, but his penalty record is fabulous.
0: So he has a 100% penalty-taking record. That is pretty impressive and pretty hard to beat, Gregor. Come on, who <laughs> are you going for?
2: I'm going for Graham Alexander. Oh, <laughs> OK. <laughs> Yeah, he's th- it's, it's harder to know ex- to tie down exactly his, his numbers because he's a bit older and he didn't always play in the Premier League. In fact, he only reached the Premier League in his 30s. Uh, but I think it's 77 out of 83. Ooh, and nice. part of it is his technique. I mean, he, he, he ran up so deadly straight and he could smash it in with the outside of his right foot or he could hit it in with the inside of his foot. So that would almost decide which corner he was going at, and he was the same. He he practiced penalties with no goalkeeper. Uh, he said that he thought that if he put the ball where he wanted it to, the goalkeepers are irrelevant, and I think that's true. Um, so you know, he 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 had a he had a kind of a reputation for for taking penalty kicks for so many years. I think he's one of a few players. He's played a thousand league games. Played for Preston North End, Burnley, uh, Scotland, Italy as well. He's now the Salford manager, of course. Um, and apparently he missed. His first ever penalty kick was when he was nineteen years old for Scunthorpe United in a playoff final at Wembley, and he missed. So he said he almost said that that he was always kind of trying to make up for that, and he practiced and practiced and practiced. And uh, you know, he he as I said, he had this reputation in the football league, and he reached the Premier League with Burnley very late on in his career. I think he scored seven or eight in the Premier League, and it really came to the. The attention of the, you know, Premier League a global stage, and this this odd technique of his, kind of run up deadly straight and smash it in with the outside of his foot, so emphatic. So uh, I'd go with Graham Alexander. Do
0: you know? I think our adjudicator Tom Clark will obviously have some issue with you picking another Scotland player. The <laughs> Scottish bias continues for you, Gregor. <laughs> Nothing How to do, do with you, that. No, honestly. <laughs> I, I feel this was intentional. How do you plead guilty?
2: <laughs> no, not guilty. It's irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: we wait to see what Tom Clark, the referee, will have to say on that one. But, you know, you, you put up a good case, a very strong case. Have you got one, that? Do you know, I have... Oh, have I got one? Put you on the um, spot, yeah. You have put me on the spot. I was... Uh, to be honest, I mean, Matt Letizia had a phenomenal record, didn't he? Uh, as we were mentioning, 25 out of 26. I think Yaya Toure had a pretty decent record yeah. when it came yeah. to spot kicks as, as well. So... I don't know, maybe I'll have to err towards someone like Matt LaTissier, but um, you've both put up very good arguments Um so I'm not sure who I would pick as the overall winner, but I'll probably pick myself. Why not? Uh, I'm I'm in charge. (laughs) But you know what? That is it for now. So many thanks to you, Gregor, and to you, Alison. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We're going to be back with you on Thursday for the very latest game podcast, so stay safe in the meantime.